you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. What is up everybody, this is your boy Rob Clark, and I hope you're loving the new intro as much as I am. The music is done by me, so I'm just going to pat myself on the back and say, good job, it kicks ass, you know. Yeah, I can make beats on a computer, and uh, it turns out not sounding too terribly awful. Um, so yeah, I've heard people are digging it, so there it is. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. This is number 65 in the series of Lord knows how many to come. Um, today I have, I'm excited because I have a really, really awesome show for everybody because this show, we are going to continue the current trend of busting myths. And these are official myths from the Warren Commission. And we're going to be looking at the testimony uh, from the Warren Commission to the HSCA to the first day affidavits to what people have told researchers. Um, and I'm going to center my study today around people and events inside the Texas School Book Depository directly before, during, and after the shooting. Because when you go back and really take a close look at, at a lot of the uh, employees and, and some of the key players in the case, not a whole lot really adds up. And you're left with more questions than answers. You have a lot of contradictory testimony, uh, a lot of outright lies. And today, we are going to go back in time. And try to straighten this thing out and figure out what in the Sam hell was going on in that school book depository. Because the picture that the Warren Commission painted, you know, the official, quote, official story that we've been fed all these years, just simply cannot be true. 
So today, we're going to be taking a look at all of this stuff, some of the key players, and hopefully some stuff you've never heard before, uh, some analysis you may not have heard before. So I'd like everybody to clear their mind of all that their learned clutter from what they think they know about what was going on inside that school book depository on November 22nd, 1963. And we're going to start with a clean, clean, clean slate. Because you'll see why in a minute. Uh, real quick, before we get into it, real quick, I just wanted to let everybody out there know of a new way you can help support this show. And you don't actually have to give me money. And to the one person out there that has donated, I appreciate it. You know who you are. Uh, solid listener. A buddy of mine. You know, I appreciate it. I got this Spreaker renewal coming up. I'm going to be having to drop 200 bucks on this thing. So, thank you. Every little bit helps. But another way that you can support the show is if you go to tlgpodcast.com. You'll find a link to Amazon. A little banner on the right-hand side. And it's at the bottom if you're on the mobile page. But if you shop on Amazon, okay, all you have to do is go through my portal, click on my link, It'll take you to Amazon, just like your normal Amazon. But if you buy something through my link, it helps out the show. Amazon kicks me back, you know, a little percentage of whatever you buy through Amazon, through my website. So, you don't actually have to give me money. All, all I'm asking is if you shop through Amazon, go through my link and do it. That way you can help support the show. There's also a link there on my page uh, for, what was it? Vaporhub.com, I believe it is. Um, so if you're into vaping, like me, um, you can support the show that way too. Head there, click the link, whatever you buy on the website, they kick back a little percentage to me. It's called uh, affiliate marketing. And I thought it would be a good way to try to raise some revenue for the show without actually having to have advertisements on the show. Because I know they suck. I know when I listen to radio shows and they have advertisements, I hate it. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't really have a lot of expenses. Uh, what I do have, uh, you know, they're, I got a big one coming, you know, and I've, I put a lot into the show. So, every little bit you can do to help me, I'd appreciate it. Um, don't forget spread the word spread links drop the show in anywhere you can in any re relevant place on any relevant medium you can twitter tumblr facebook whatever um you know maybe your friends will see the link and they'll click on it and they'll like it you know so anything you can do to help me out is greatly appreciated so enough of that all right let's get into the show and i know up front some of this is going to be confusing Especially for those out there not too familiar with the workers in the, in the Texas School Book Depository. Now, if you're a researcher and you're familiar with the workers, uh, you know, names like Billy Lovelady, Junior Jarman, Harold Norman, Billy, uh, Bonnie Ray Williams, um, Jack Doherty, Bill Shelley, Roy Truly, you know, you're going you're gonna to be okay. It's, gonna be, it, it's still going to be hard to follow, but... You know, if you're not familiar with these names, 
I suggest you grab a pen and paper and write them down and, and do do a little research on them after the show. And uh, you'll see why I am uh, highlighting them on this episode. Um, so, here we go. And these first couple things that I'm going to be sharing with you uh, are going to come right out of Larry Sneed's book, No More Silence. An Oral History of the Assassination of President Kennedy. And this is one of the more unique books of, uh, from the assassination lore uh, because it entails a lot of interviews with uh, various people that uh, most of them really didn't get a whole lot of attention um, from the Warren Commission or HSCA. There may be forgotten people in history. Uh, he's got eyewitnesses, he's got police. Um, he's got uh, investigators and people involved in the Oswald transfer in the aftermath so a lot of good stuff in this book I highly recommend it um, so here we go and we're going to start today with a lady by the name of Ruth Dean Okay, Ruth Dean worked for the Macmillan Publishing Company and Ruth Dean was actually on the steps, <laughs> yeah, the, the famous doorway of the Texas School Book Depository that day. And her, her uh, main quote here is, I was standing there with Maddie Reese and Billy Lovelady and several other employees. I remember Billy being there because we were joking before the motorcade arrived. Lee Harvey Oswald was not on the steps as some people have claimed. <coughs> oh, sorry, something got in my throat there. Um, yet, yet another witness that claims Lee Harvey Oswald was not out there. And you know what? She was there. She was there. So, let's move on here and see what Ruth Dean has to tell us. Uh, she states she was the bookkeeper and cashier for the Macmillan Publishing Company. And her offices were on the third floor of the TSBD. And I, I suppose I should set the scene a little bit of the Texas School Book Depository here for people not that familiar. Um, the, the, uh, the building on Elm Street was relatively new. Not a new building, but uh, new as being part of a book depository. Um, the original... Texas School Book Depository was a couple blocks away over off McKinney um, down Houston and over off McKinney and a lot of these publishing companies were housed in the Dow Tex building um, and then I believe it was around August or September of that year, 63 uh, the building on Elm Street was opened and a lot of these publishing companies moved their operations in there as well as part of the operation for the school book depository as far as collating the orders. Um, I guess it was supposed that it would streamline how they did business there, uh, make it a little bit more efficient to do it this way. So in this one building you have housed in here, you have a, uh, a lot of warehouse space. You have a lot of offices. There's offices on the second third and fourth floors there's also warehouse space on 
the first floor, I think the third, fourth, and the fifth. I don't think there was warehouse space on the second. Uh, sixth, of course, and the seventh, I don't believe was in use uh, back at the time. It may have been. I'm not sure. I don't believe it was. Um, there was two elevators that operated inside the school book depository side by side on the, I guess, the north side or be towards the back of, of the building away from Elm Street. And so let's get back to what Ruth Dean has to tell us here. Okay. Um, as far as she knew of Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, you know, he, he stayed to himself. He didn't say much. Uh, he, he did not carry a conversation on with people. And you'll find this is a common theme with many people interviewed uh, that were working inside the Texas School Book Depository that Lee Harvey Oswald hardly ever spoke to them, never said hello, never engaged in conversation, was always head down and stayed very much to himself. A lot of people have said this. Um, and not just that day. I mean, I'm talking like the whole time he worked there for the, uh, you know, five weeks or whatever it was before November 22nd. Um, now, she goes on to tell that she was standing there with Maddie Reese and Billy Lovelady. And uh, the, she has the motorcade, you know, of course, came down Houston Street and made a left turn on the Elm. Uh, she heard three shots with two being close together and one a little further apart. They were not evenly spaced. She remembers seeing Jackie Kennedy climb over the back seat, uh, and, the, and the Secret Service man jumped up and, and made her get back in the car. That's about the most vivid recollection I have of it. I was able to see that reasonably clearly from where I was standing, although when the president was hit, apparently I wasn't able to see that because some of the tree trunks were at that point. I wasn't able to tell where the shots were coming from. Okay, You'll find this is another common theme from people that were standing on the steps in front of the building. They could not tell where the shots were coming from. Although if they would have just looked up uh, 50 feet above them, it's where the shots supposedly were coming from. Um, I, I, I just don't understand how they could miss this unless they actually weren't coming from there. But we'll get back into that later. Um, let's see, where were we? She thought that they were firecrackers. Which is another common theme. A lot of people thought that there was firecrackers that they were hearing. Or at least that the first shot was a firecracker. And Mrs. Reese, who was standing next to her, said, no, that was a gunshot. We continued to stand there because it was so quick. When all three had been fired. And then we decided we needed to hurry on because the bank was going to be closing. So we went on to the bank, made the deposit, had our lunch, and came back. But we did talk about it. Now, it seems kind of odd that they would just get the hell out of there and go to a bank and then have lunch and then come back to the building. But you'll soon find out that they weren't alone. Okay. And I'm, I'm referring to leaving uh, for lunch or just leaving in general. Um, now, let me see here. She just goes on to tell how, uh, you know, how weird it was and just dealing with all that. Um, now, let's go and look at Roy Lewis's 
oral history here. Uh, he says in his little quote, Unlike some witnesses, I didn't see any smoke or smell gunpowder, nor could I tell the direction of the shots because it was like an echo there. No way did I suspect anything coming from the Texas School Book Depository. Uh, Roy Lewis, okay, was a black fella who worked there um, and was on the front steps of the School Book Depository at the time of the shots. Okay, he is the black face that you see in the famous doorway photo around uh, uh, Billy Lovelady's midsection, looking left. Um, his story, okay, is uh, he was an order picker, and Junior Jarman was the shipping and receiving guy, which meant that he would check things out, then pack them. Uh, sometimes he would need to fill orders, so we'd all go up on the different floors and bring them back to the first floor. We had access to the 4th, the 5th, the 6th floors where all the stock was located. Our offices were located on the 2nd and 3rd floors, but we never went into the office unless they asked one of us to come up for something. Besides, the book publisher's offices were located on the 2nd and 3rd floors, and we didn't have any dealings with them since they were a totally separate operation. Uh, the main lunchroom uh, for the warehouse workers was on the 1st floor which was also referred to as the Domino Room. There was a break room on the second floor where they had a vending machine and a pop machine. However, we hardly ever went to that floor, though, since that floor was considered for the publisher's office people. Okay? Um, he believes there was about 12 to 15 people who worked in the warehouse. Mostly the packers stayed on the first floor, while the order pickers were the ones that had access to the upper floors. Occasionally, the packers would go up to the upper floors if they had made a mistake or if they couldn't find us, in which case they would go up and straighten it out themselves. But mostly, the order pickers would go up and fill the orders. The upper floors were filled with stacks and stacks of books from various publishers, Southwestern, Macmillan, and Scott Forsman. They were mostly all school books. As I recall, Eddie Piper was the oldest worker there. He was a, considered a porter or janitor of the building. Uh, he was black, as were Troy West, Hank Norman, Junior Jarman, Charles Givens, Bonnie Ray Williams, and myself. The white workers included Jack Doherty, Billy Lovelady, two brothers named Frank and Fred, Wesley Frazier, and Lee Harvey Oswald. Bonnie Ray was a really nice guy who was very quiet. He was an order picker like me, but he always had the ambition someday to leave and get another job. He was an ambitious guy, and I liked that about him. Next to me, he was the youngest black worker there. Wesley Frazier was the youngest white. Junior Jarman was a little older, probably in his 30s, while Hank Norman was a little younger. Charles Givens, who we called Slim, I imagine he was in his late 40s or early 50s when I first met him. And here's the common theme. Oswald was quiet, hardly ever talked to anybody, kept his head in a newspaper all the time. Even when we were in the lunchroom together, he'd hardly ever talk to anyone. If you'd ask him to pass you something, he would, and if you spoke to him, he would speak to you. But that's as far as it went. Nobody made fun of him. They just joked with him a little. Uh, Gibbons used to tease him, but he didn't seem to care. He just gave a little smirky smile and a nod and went on about his business of reading the paper or whatever he was doing. Usually he brought his own lunch, hardly ever went out, and he almost never played dominoes or talked with the rest of us. We all thought that was very odd. Uh, he never wanted to get a haircut. We would tease him about it because hair would be growing down his neck. Uh, we told him about a week uh, or two before the assassination that we were just going to throw him down and cut it ourselves. And he just smiled and laughed. But he was a good worker. I don't remember his getting into arguments with anybody. 
I've been told uh, that some people confuse Billy Lovelady with Oswald, but Oswald or Lovelady was much heavier, and even though Oswald's hair was thinning, Billy's was all but gone up there. Um, he says it was like a family there. They were all good friends on the job and had fun, but after work, they hardly associated. They used to race up and down the elevators, uh, filling orders. Sometimes, if you were on one of the floors by yourself, somebody would sneak up and you'd never know they were there. They might go up on the floor above you where you'd hear the elevator stop and you'd assume that they were there. But they could walk down the stairway and a lot of times they'd be on you before you know it. But we did have a fun uh, filling those orders because there was nobody to bother us. Roy truly would give us something to do and he'd never check on us. Okay. So, here, here presents itself another problem. Is that apparently... It was relatively easy to sneak up on people and fool people by taking the elevator to a floor above or below and then walking up the stairs. Nobody hear you coming and you could sneak up on people and really get them. And it was something that they enjoyed doing to each other. Uh, he says he wasn't really uh, worried about the president's visit to Dallas. Uh, that's why he says that he was on the... Uh, he was right in the middle of the steps in front of the building that led to the sidewalk beyond the glass door. As the motorcade came by, I remember seeing Kennedy brushing back his hair, then all hell broke loose. I heard boom, 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 with the second and third shots being much closer together. The people down in front of me hit the ground, and everybody started running toward the grassy knoll. Apparently, people assumed that whoever was doing the shooting might have been over there, so I followed them. But before we could get far, a policeman stopped us and told us to go back to the building and wait. They then came in and interviewed everybody and told us not to go back out anymore after that. I don't know if he did it on his own or for the police, but I do remember truly calling off the names of everybody from a list that worked there. That was on the first floor where a few, a few of us had gathered. That's important, a few of us. But since we would come and go at lunch, you could do whatever you wanted as long as you were back in time. So not everyone was there, which contradicts the official story of... Oswald being the only one not accounted for at this truly roll call. That's a myth. Okay? There was a few people there. Alright? And you have it right here from an employee who says it was not uncommon for people to just leave during lunch and then come back. Not that... Not that they didn't have a, a clock to punch. You know? So... They pretty much came and went as they pleased. Uh, he says, the day of the assassination, he doesn't recall seeing Oswald. Uh, if he did, it would have been early that morning. Afterwards, I didn't see him at all. How Oswald got out of the building, I don't know. In fact, I don't know how he got from the sixth floor to the second floor. As I understand, though, he was seen in the second floor break room when Truly and the policeman encountered him uh, something like a minute and a half after the shooting. I guess that's possible, but he would have had to have been boogieing. But Oswald was thin, so it would have been easier for him because he could skip two or three steps on the way down. Coming from the sixth floor down to the second, four flights of stairs would have still been tough, though. I never tried it, but I imagine if you were in good shape, you could do it. After that, I don't know how he got from the second floor out of the building without anybody seeing him. But it probably would have been easy since there was so much commotion. Uh, and then he says, Truly never talked to us about it, and there was very little talk among the workers after it happened. Uh, we were so stunned and hurt, I guess everybody felt so bad about it. We just couldn't believe this happened, and it's especially hard to believe that you work with someone that they said had done it. 
the only one of us I assume Oswald was friendly with was Wesley Frazier, and that's because he rode to work with him. Wesley didn't talk about him much, but he did say that he asked him what he had in that package that morning, and he said, if I remember him correctly, that it was curtain rods for his wife. He told me that long after this was over. So, there you have it from yet another witness employee of the Texas School Book Depository that Oswald rode to work with him. Okay? And we'll get to Buell before this is all over with. Trust me. Trust me. Um, yeah, so that is Roy Lewis. Okay? And he is not convinced that Oswald did it or that he acted alone if he did do it. Next, let's visit Otis Williams. And I will do a, a mea culpa here on Chuck's show, Chuck O'Shelley, Chuck O'Shelley's show, The O'Shelley Effect, the other night. I called this man Otis Wilson for some reason. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why, uh, but his name is Otis Williams. Okay? And his quote is this. I remember the day he came in because I was talking with Roy Truly. And Truly said, I believe I've got an extra good help. I've got a good one, I think. That's the first thing he said. He seemed to know more than the ordinary person they sent up to him. That was the first thing I ever heard of Oswald. Okay, now this Otis Wilson, Otis shit, there I called him again. Otis Williams, uh, fellow, he was the uh, official credit manager of the TSBD. Uh, most of their business was with the Texas Department of Education with the free textbooks, and he kept track of all the orders and everything that came in and saw that they went out on time. Um, they secured contracts with different publishers to distribute the books. A publisher, unless he had an awful lot of books, couldn't maintain a shipping department, so uh, we did it for them. Um, and the odd thing about Otis Williams here is, okay, he says, I just worked... Uh, the general worked that morning, coming up to time to go, so I worked them up until 10 or 15 minutes before the parade came by. I worked on the second floor, and a few minutes later went downstairs into the doorway entrance and waited until the president came by. Actually, they all did anyway without me saying anything. Everyone in the depository went down to see it or looked from the windows. We had offices facing the street, and some of the workers stayed up in the offices and looked down. We were just waiting at the entrance to the building above the steps. Okay? So it was right outside the glass doors. When the motorcade came around the corner and then made that bend to get to the underpass, I had a clear view as it passed by of the president and all in the car. And then it went behind a little wall going toward the underpass. Probably five or ten seconds later is when I first thought I heard the shots. The first one, I assume someone threw a firecracker. Here's another the common theme here, people. But soon, evidently, it showed that people were coming and swaying and, and moving about so that you knew there was shooting. I didn't actually see the president hit as he was behind that little wall. Uh, I didn't hear, or some say a motorcycle made a backfire, but I didn't hear that. It sounded like a firecracker. I couldn't tell the direction of the shots. Actually, <laughs> I probably heard echoes more than the actual shots because I was right under the shots, supposedly. And the building covers over where we were. He was directly above us 
50 feet up on the sixth floor. So here's another guy standing in the doorway that has no clue that there's supposedly shooting going on 50 feet above his head. He says he didn't see smoke or smell gunpowder. Fact is, as soon as the third shot happened and everybody commenced milling around, I thought it came from the underpass. I entered the building immediately. I climbed up the stairs back back where the warehouse elevator was, which led to the sixth floor and went up to the fourth floor. Okay? Now, this is why this is important, people. Here we have Otis Williams. Okay? Uh, I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how long he stayed outside before he went inside, but it couldn't have been too long. Okay. But he, he went to the back staircase, the one Oswald is supposed to have come down now and climbed up the stairs back where the warehouse elevator was, which led to the sixth floor. And he went up to the fourth floor. So this is Otis Williams going up to the fourth floor. Didn't see anybody on the stairs. Okay, uh, he went up to the fourth floor to hopefully get a better look at what was going on uh, under the underpass. After I got up there and saw that I could see nothing uh, from there, uh, I turned around and came back down to the office and called my wife. So he's he's come up these steps, four flights, no Oswald. He's going back down two flights to the second floor where Oswald supposedly, you know was in the lunchroom there but he didn't see him um he went down back down to the second floor to his office and called his wife soon while we were talking people started coming in officers rushed in and i had to get off the phone i could have gone down the steps while oswald came down but he came down on the elevator okay now this is interesting okay is it possible that because Otis Williams didn't see him, okay, up, coming up or down the stairs, Victoria Adams didn't see him coming up or down the stairs, Roy Truly and, and Marion Baker didn't see Oswald on the stairs. In fact, the only place he was seen was on the second floor lunchroom. And Otis Williams seemed convinced that he took the elevator down to the second floor. So, if this is true, then, let's see, because Marion Baker and Roy Truly came in, they said that both elevators were stuck on the fifth floor. They tried to call for him, nobody sent him down, so they took the steps. Okay, so what if it, in this little short period of time, that they were going up? Could Oswald have magically appeared, even riding an elevator, from the fifth floor to the second floor? I mean, that's not a lot of time, I don't think. Um, and you got to remember that the elevators were stuck on the fifth floor. So if Oswald was shooting from the sixth floor, he would have had to hide his gun by the entrance of the back stairway, went down one flight of stairs to the fifth floor, and got on the elevator there, then went to the second floor and got off. All without being noticed by anyone. And there were people on the fifth floor. And we'll get to them in a minute. Now, Otis Williams says that he did not see Oswald that day at all, anywhere. Um, 
Mrs. Reed said she spoke to him and told him that the president had been shot and he didn't say anything. He just kept walking out. I'm told that Oswald was seen after Truly and the officer came in the lunchroom. He and the officer thought the shots had come from the roof. And as they were going up steps, the officer saw Oswald with a Coke and said, Who's that? Truly responded, Oh, he works here. I was there when Roy Truly actually called Roll and found that he was missing. He said, Oh, no, it can't be one of our employees. He had no idea that anything like that would happen. Um, then he goes on to tell a little bit about how another employee named Joe Molina was let go due to the ensuing investigation. Um, the controversy regarding Joe Molina occurred, or Joe Molina occurred when his name, Joe Rodriguez Molina, occurred when his name was linked with an alleged subversive organization, the American GI Forum, by Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry on national television and in the newspapers on Saturday, November 23rd. Now, Otis says, People have asked me about my opinions on the assassination for years. And as far as I'm concerned, there was only one gunman. I didn't hear any extra shots that came from the terrace, uh, even though he ran up to the fourth floor and to look. Uh, I'm convinced Oswald did the shooting because the boys on the floor directly below him watching from that floor heard shells hitting on the floor and the shells, three shells, were still there. Personally, I think he and Ruby were connected. And he goes on to say, he left our depository and went to his boarding house in Oak Cliff and got his pistol and then walked out. He was going directly in the direction of Ruby's apartment, and I think he was going to Ruby's apartment to stay there for an indefinite time until all the pressure was off where he could leave. When the policeman stopped him, stopped him that killed everything. I think Oswald and Ruby were connected in some way with Cuba through Mexico, and that he intended to go to one of those two places. Now, of course, that's just one man's opinion. Uh, don't know for sure, but... Let's go to something in the official narrative that we've always heard about, okay? And that is from the testimony of Harold Norman, Junior Jarman, and Bonnie Ray Williams. These three black guys. Now, these three guys were caught in a photograph a couple seconds after the shots. I believe it was the Dillard photograph. And... They are definitely in the windows of the fifth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. That much is for certain. Okay? But, there was a little lying going on here. Now we're going to turn our attention to the first day affidavits of some of these people. And we're going to try to figure out exactly when it was fresh in their mind... What the hell they were doing. Okay. So let's take a look here. Makes my shooting at me. Um, first at Bonnie Ray Williams. Affidavit in any fact. 22nd day of November 1963. This is Bonnie Ray now. Uh, I went to work at 8 a.m. this morning. I worked on the 6th floor today with Mr. Bill. Uh, Danny Arce, Charles, and a Billy Lovelady. Charles was outside and could not get back in, so I guess he went home. We worked up until 10 minutes to 12, and then we went downstairs. 
We rode the elevator to the first floor and got our lunches. I went back on the fifth floor with a fellow called Hankin Jr. I don't know his last name. Just after we got on the fifth floor, we saw the president coming around the corner on Houston from Maine. I heard two shots. It sounded like they came from just above us. We ran to the west side of the building. We didn't see anybody. Uh, we looked down and saw people running and hollering. We stayed there. And in a little while, uh, some officers came up and they left. And then we took the elevator to the fourth floor. We stayed there a while and then went on out. Uh, Lee Oswald was there when I got to work this morning at 8 a.m. He fills orders and goes all over the building. I didn't see Oswald anymore that I remember after I saw him at 8 a.m. I recognized him just a few minutes ago when the officers brought him in the office. Oswald had been working at the School Book Depository for about six weeks. Bonnie Ray Williams. All right, Bonnie Ray, there's a couple problems here. One is you told the Warren Commission that you ate your lunch on the sixth floor by your little lonesome self because you thought all your floor crew buddies were going back up to the sixth floor to eat their lunches. Okay, and watch the parade from there. But, for some reason, they chose not to. For some reason, Bill Shelley and Bill Lovelady went out on the front steps. some reason, Charles Givens left the building. And we don't know where he went for lunch or where he was standing or what, you know when all this happened. Um, Danny Arce... Not accounted for at the time of the shots. He said he was standing out at the corner of Elm. And he's possibly captured in a photo. We don't know for sure if it is him. Um, but what he told the Warren Commission is that he ate his lunch. It was a chicken sandwich, chicken on the bone. Uh, and then he left his trash and his chicken bones and his Dr. Pepper bottle up on the sixth floor. And he says that he was up there. Okay, so they all they all broke for lunch at about 11.50. He states that he was up on the 6th floor until almost 12.20. And that he thought he heard somebody walking around and talking on the floor directly below him, which is the 5th floor. Um, so he walked down to the 5th floor and he says... That is where he watched the motorcade with uh, Junior Jarman and Harold Norman. But in, in this first day affidavit, uh, he says that he went back to the fifth floor with Hank and Junior and ate his lunch there. Okay, so why is he lying? Why? And then... You know, they always stated that they heard the shots coming from right above them, okay, because they heard shells hitting the ground, okay, and and even, uh, I think one of them got some uh, white roof or ceiling, ceiling particles in their hair, but from somebody walking around upstairs, and, uh, but yet he says here that they ran to the, let's see, they ran to the west side of the building. They said, we didn't see anybody. We looked down and saw people running and hollering. So why would they run to the west side of the building when they just sat there and heard the shots coming from right above them? They heard shells dropping right above their head. And then it says, 
that they waited there, their cops came up, and then they went to the fourth floor. For some reason, before they left, actually left the building. Now, we do see uh, from pictures of that day, uh, pictures of Danny Arce and Bonnie Ray Williams being shoved in the back of a police cruiser and taken down to the station. Um, but there's just a couple of an anomalies in uh, Motherfucker. Okay, we're still recording. Sorry. <laughs> I thought we weren't there. All right. Sorry about that. All right, that's Bonnie Ray Williams. All right, let's take a look at what Junior Jarman had to say. I work for the Texas School Book Depository, 411 Elm Street, as a checker on the first floor for Mr. Truly. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I got to work at 8.05. Uh, he saw Lee Oswald at 8.15. He was filling orders on the first floor a little after 9. Lee Oswald asked me what all the people were doing standing on the street. And this is at 9, a little after 9 a.m. I told him that the president was supposed to come this way sometime this morning. He asked me, which way do you think he's coming? I told him that the president would probably come down Main Street and turn on Houston and then go down Elm. He said, yes, I see. I only talked with him for about three or four minutes. The last time I saw Lee Oswald on Friday was between 11.30 and noon when he was taking the elevator upstairs to go get some boxes. At about 11.45, all the employees who were working on the sixth floor came downstairs and we were all out on the street at about 12 o'clock, noon. These employees were Bill Shelley, Charles Givens, Billy Lovelady, Bonnie Ray, and a Spanish boy, which would be Danny Arce. To my knowledge, Lee Oswald was not with us while we were watching the parade. <sighs> was, was Junior Jarman high? You know, I, I just have to ask, because maybe at the time he didn't know that his ass got caught up on the fifth floor. Um... And maybe when it was asserted that shots were coming from the 5th or 6th floor of that building, they were scared and did not want to be put up there. Um, but uh, Junior Jarman, okay, says that we were all out on the street at about 12 o'clock noon. Bill Shelley, Givens, Lovelady, Bonnie Ray, and Danny Arce. To my knowledge, Lee Oswald was not with us while we were watching the parade. So, he's lying right there. We got him up in the window. He's saying he was outside watching the parade. Okay? That's a lie. Bold-faced lie. Um, let's see here. Jack Doherty. Let's see what Jack had to say here. I am employed at the Texas School Book Depository for 11 Elm and have been since 52. I was working on the sixth floor today. There were six of us working on the floor. The others were Billy Lovelady, William Shelley, Danny Arce, Bonnie Williams, and Charles Givens. I worked until 12 noon and went down to, on the first floor and ate my lunch. And I went back to work at 12.45 p.m. I had already gone back to work. And I had gone down on the 5th to get some stock when I heard a shot. It sounded like it came from inside the building, but I couldn't tell where. I went down on the first floor and asked a man named Eddie Piper if he'd heard anything, and he said yes, that he had heard three shots. 
I then went back on the sixth floor. Okay. Uh, I didn't see anyone on the floor except the people I named. There was another employee that is, that is named Lee Oswald that I saw on the sixth floor. He works all over the building, but I saw him on the sixth floor shortly before noon. I didn't see Oswald in the building after lunch. Okay. Now, here's a couple problems with this. Okay. He says he ate, ate his lunch on the first floor and went back to work at 1245. Okay. The president's been shot 14 minutes before this. Okay. I'm giving the benefit of the doubt that some of the clocks might be wrong. Some of the times might be wrong. Let's give him 10 minutes. Okay. Instead of 14. Um, even then. Okay. He says he had already gone back to work. And I gone down onto the 5th when he heard a shot. Now, if you have to go down to the 5th. That implies you are on the 6th or the 7th or the roof. Because you have to be above the 5th to go down to the 5th. Right? Yeah. That's what I did. Um, he then says, I went back on the 6th floor. I didn't see anyone on the floor. Now, they say this fellow was a little slow. And that maybe he didn't really know. But... His testimony is very confusing. Very confusing. Um, you know, was he on the sixth floor? We don't know. Bonnie Ray was up there alone eating his lunch. You know, did Jack come up? Did Jack Was Jack even on the fifth floor? Because you had um, Bonnie Ray Williams and Jarman and Norman on the fifth floor. And they say they never saw Jack Doherty. So what the hell is going on here? He's a hard one to figure out. You know, and then I'll throw another one in here just for shits and giggles. Uh, he's not really a, a depository employee, but uh, I think it matters here. Uh, this is from Howard Brennan, first day affidavit, Sheriff's Department. Um, I was sitting on a ledge near the intersection of Houston and Elm Street near the red light pole. I was facing in a northerly direction, looking not only at Elm Street, but I could see the large red brick building across the street from where I was sitting. Whew, excuse me. I take this building across the street to be about seven stories. Anyway, in the east end of the building and the second row of windows from the top, I saw a man in this window. I had seen him before the president's car arrived. He was just sitting up there looking down, apparently waiting for the same thing I was to see the president. I did not notice anything unusual about this man. He, uh, he was white in his early 30s, slender, nice-looking, uh, about 165, 170. Uh, he had on light-colored clothing, but definitely not a suit. I proceeded to watch the president's car as it turned left at the corner where I was and about 50 yards from the intersection of Elm and Houston. And to a point, I would say the president's back was in line with the last window I have previously described. I heard what I thought was a backfire. It run in mind that it might be someone throwing firecrackers. Another common theme. Out the window of the red brick building, and I looked up at the building. I then saw this man I have described in the window, and he was taking aim with a high-powered rifle. Uh, I could see all of the barrel of a gun. I do not know if it had a scope on it or not. I was looking at the man in this window at the time of the last explosion. Then this man let the gun go down to his side and stepped down out of sight. He did not seem to be in a hurry. I could see this man from his belt up. There was nothing unusual about him at all in appearance. I believe I could identify this man if I ever saw him again. 
Now that's Howard Brennan. Um, yeah. So, a lot of problems here. A lot of problems. Um, because when these three, Harold, uh, Norman, Junior Jarman, and Bonnie Ray Williams, um, talked to the HSCA, they didn't mention to the Warren Commission that, uh, that they actually hid on the fifth floor, um, when the cops came up, which is an odd admission, um, you know, their reasoning was they just didn't want to get caught up there, um, you know, it's just weird, you know, you know, is this when Jack Doherty could have popped in and they just didn't see him or didn't hear him or cause when the, could this be when the sixth floor shooter came down to the fifth floor and hopped on the elevator and they didn't see him or hear him? You know, it's hard to say. Um, and then we have Buell Frazier. Now, people hate it when I somehow imply that Buell Frazier is hiding something. But I'm not the only one to believe this. Okay. In, uh, it started off, I'd say back in the 70s, there was a book called The Assassination Tapes that came out that uh, utilized a new technology called voice stress analysis that determined that in his uh, subsequent television interview, uh, Buell Frazier was lying about the events of that day. Uh, and then they tracked him down in the 70s when he was in the uh, Army and a private investigator did and interviewed him uh, for the book, The Assassination Tapes. And he was very evasive. And it turns out he was lying again in the 70s. Um, so what does this mean? What exactly was he lying about? Well, I can tell you right now that Frazier was definitely lying about the package. Okay. Jack Doherty said that he saw Oswald come in the building that morning with no package in his hand. None. No package. Now, Buell says that it was two feet long. Okay? And that it was wrapped in some flimsy-ass dime store paper bag wrapping. Okay? Which does not match the kind of heavy-duty quality paper that the depository used for its bags and packaging. Um... So, and, you know, if you go with what the Carcano was broken down, uh, it was at least almost three feet long, okay? So, if Oswald had a package, alright, if he did, it wasn't long enough to hold a rifle, therefore, this whole thing falls apart, okay? If he did have a package, it was only two feet long, and it could not have contained a rifle, Okay, so the whole thing falls apart. And if he just didn't have a package, period, then Buell lied anyway. So any way you look at it, Frazier lied about the package. Now, what else did Frazier lie about? Well, a lot. And I'll put up a link to my article that I wrote about him, but I'll tell you a little bit uh, more about him right now. Um, 
according to their HSCA interviews, uh, other school book depository employees, namely Edward Shields, who worked at the other building, the one where Frazier had to park his car, stated that Frazier came into work that morning and parked his car alone. And that somebody yelled out to him, hey, where's your rider? And to which Frazier replied, I dropped him off at the building. Okay. Now, you must remember that morning on the way in from Irving, it was raining. Okay. Now, when you're bringing somebody to work and it's raining and you have to park a friggin' country mile away. All right. And if you're a nice guy, what do you do? What do you do? Would you be nice and drop the guy off at the door so he didn't have to walk a damn country mile in the rain? Or would you be a dick and drive all the way, you know, to where you got to park your car and make make him walk, you know, that whole way in the rain? Then we have Jarman, Norman, Shields, all stating that Frazier brought Oswald to work not just on Fridays or Mondays, but every day, every day, which I believe can be confirmed by this one small observation. Okay. Now the Warren Commission dug and they dug and they dug and they dug to find this bus driver. Okay. This cab driver, you know, these former landladies of Oswald. What about the bus driver? Okay. Who drove the bus that took Oswald to and from work every day, except, you know, home on Fridays and, and to, to, to work on Mondays. Where is that bus driver? We didn't hear from him. They didn't look for him. You know why? Because Oswald did not ride the bus to and from work every other day. And he damn sure didn't walk either. So why walk when you can ride the bus? I mean, you know. Oswald was a lot of things, but he wasn't dumb. Okay. Now, like I said, they, they moved heaven and earth to find the bus driver that, that, you know, took him around the corner and the cab driver that took him home or, well, seven blocks past home. But, uh, yeah, but where is the driver who for almost six weeks drove the president's assassin to and from work? Because... Okay, bus bus routes, okay, it's generally a dedicated run. You know, they run the same places all day long. Okay, so even if you have two different drivers, there would have been one guy who always picked up this guy Oswald in the morning, you know, at, at, the, at the corner of their own Zangs where the bus stop was. Okay, he would have been there every morning. He would have seen this guy get on the bus there every morning. Where is he? He doesn't exist. Where's all the people that rode on that bus every morning to work with the assassin of the president? You know, that would be something noteworthy. That would be a news story. You never hear from them because they don't exist because it didn't happen. Okay, and people say, no, Frazier wouldn't have gone out of his way to pick him up. It was too far out of his way. No, it wasn't. It was really about a mile and a quarter out of his way. An extra five minutes added to his commute. That's it. You know, and everybody says, how, what a nice guy Mr. Frazier is. What a nice guy he is. 
you know, why wouldn't he offer this guy, hey man, I know you don't, you know, I know you don't have a car, and we're going to the same place, I can just swing by and pick you up, or I can just swing by and take you home, it's no problem, Lee, oh, sorry, my Buell Frazier impression is creeping out again, it's no problem, Lee, sure, no problem, um, so, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but there's other stuff, okay, this whole story about his rev, you know, Bill Fraser revving his engine, uh, you know, to charge his battery, you know, and that in his Warren Commission testimony, he states that Oswald went ahead and got out of the car, got the package, and started walking, okay, and that somehow, you know, Bill Fraser was the flash, so somehow he sat there for a couple minutes revving his engine to charge the battery, and somehow he ended up almost. Uh, catching up to Lee, okay, uh, and he said they walked in the building together. You know, beyond me how that how that happens, and you know he wasn't questioned further about that. Um, but just little things like that, little inconsistencies in the story, and then you have the fact that for some reason that day, that particular fateful day, Buell Frazier. goes inside before the assassination mind you after he was already on the steps he, he said he looked around and saw everybody eating and he got hungry so he went back inside to get his lunch but on this particular day he had taken his lunch to the basement now the basement's not really part of the whole depository you know the basement back then in these old days was you know, where the furnace and a lot of the pipes and, you know, storage and stuff was. It wasn't really part of the business, you know, so to speak. Um, so what the hell is Bill Frazier doing eating his lunch in the basement by himself? And then right before the motorcade comes, he, he you know, he walks outside with Billy Lovelady and Bill Shelley and everybody else out there. You know, and, and because Frazier's, you know, a big old tall donk, you know, he can see over everybody. So, he, you know, he's kind of up on the top of the stairs there. Um, and we know this because we have him caught in pictures. You know, we have him right there. And you know, the Dallas police were really interested in him. Um, they kept him for eight hours. They gave him a lie detector test. Um, they put a conf confession in front of him and asked him to sign it. And then he got pissed off at, at, at uh, Will Fritz and threatened to punch him. And then there's the whole problem of where the hell Buell Frazier was immediately after the assassination. He is unaccounted for for three hours from 1 to 4.30. Okay. Now he stated in his sixth floor oral history that he stood on the steps after the assassination and he saw Lee Oswald come walking down Houston Street beside the building, cross the street, and turn down Main Street. Okay. Then what happened? Well, nobody knows where in the hell Buell Frazier was. They were looking for him because supposedly... You know, this is the guy that brought the missing guy to work, but he's missing too. Okay? And even after Lee Oswald 
was arrested at the Texas Theater, and they figured out that this is the guy who brought him. Well, they were really looking for him then, and they couldn't find Buell Frazier anywhere. In fact, his own sister told police that he was at the hospital uh, with his with his stepfather, and she told him that he was at Parkland. So they're at Parkland looking for this guy. In the meantime, he's at like the Irving Hospital Medical Center, whatever it is, and they somehow find him there at 4:30. So a lot of stuff doesn't really jive. So what the hell was Frazier doing for those three hours after the assassination? You know, and he had just got to the hospital. It wasn't like he had been there all day. So what in the hell was he doing? We don't know. And boy, I would sure like to know. Because it might answer a lot of questions. And Mr. Frazier is still the only one alive, the only vocal one alive, that was standing out on those steps. Now, I'm not sure who if I talked to uh, or talked about today is still alive. Roy Lewis possibly is. Uh, he was only 18 at the time. So he would only be not even 70. Uh, Frazier was 19. So he's about 70. Um, so, yeah. You know, and, and both these guys have the opportunity to possibly live, you know, 20, 30 more years if they're, if they're lucky enough. So, you know, it's pretty crazy to think about that for a minute. You know, that, that two people that were on the front steps of that depository could possibly be around for another 20 or 30 years it's crazy um but there you have it you know and i i talked about an article before on this show called the web or the what was it shit the spider web of the texas school book depository or something something like that you know that tells of possible uh arms shipments being run through there and shipped out of there and that Bill Shelley was possibly uh, an intelligence operative um, you know on and on and on and on and on so who in the hell really knows what went on that day there's some funny business going on most definitely and there's a whole book out there by Barry Ernest about the descent of Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles that day from the fourth floor uh, to the first floor. And they state they got out front before Baker and Truly were rushing in, unless they mistook them uh, for somebody else. So my best guess is this. That Oswald was where he told Fritz that he was. Um, and let me read that for you real quick. In Oswald's own words, according to Fritz. Uh, and I'm not referring to his notes like some people want to. This is actually from Fritz's report that he wrote for the uh, Warren Commission. From his notes. Um, I asked him what part of the building he was in at the time uh, the president was shot. And he said he was having his lunch at about that time on the first floor. Now, 
here's what I think happened. Whew. All right. Oswald. Everybody else is either out front or elsewhere in the building eating their lunch. He went in by himself in that domino room. Loving life because he had the whole room to himself. Nobody was there to bother him. He could eat his lunch in peace. He could read his newspaper in peace. Okay? And I think that's exactly what he did that day. Now, I don't know if he was told to stay inside the building or, or exactly what his marching orders were. Uh, it could have just been a convergence of bad uh, <laughs> bad luck. I, I don't know. Um, but my best guess has Oswald in the domino room eating lunch until probably 1230 to when he went upstairs and he got a Coke out of the machine. And that's when they come in on him. And Oswald might've really actually been the only witness to the real assassin. Or Oswald's job could have been to help the real assassin out of the building. You know, it's hard to say. Hard to say. And we'll never know because he's dead. So, uh, yeah, there's that. But my best guess has him there. And then going up to get a Coke to wash down his lunch. And then seeing all the excitement and commotion, decided to go ahead and leave for the day. And not say anything to anybody because, like everybody said, that's the kind of person he was. Okay? So maybe, maybe Frazier saw him leave. Maybe he didn't. I don't know the truth. Frazier's acting weird that day. He's not telling the truth about that day. And he's not telling the truth about him and Oswald's relationship. So, and he's not definitely not telling the truth about the package. And then you have these guys, the black guys lying about where they were, you know, where they, where they were during, when they were watching the parade and where they were eating lunch. Why is that? Well, because it puts Bonnie Williams on the sixth floor as late as 1220. And therein lies the problem because the motorcade was running late that day. So the assassin would have already been in place. And these guys were replacing the floor. They had just started two days prior um, on the 20th. They had been on the fifth floor, replaced that floor, and they had just moved up to the sixth floor to replace that floor. They were laying new boards down. And in order to do this, you have to create space, enough for six people to work. You need saws, you need, you need hammers, and you need room for boards. So what are you going to do? You're going to clear the middle of the floor out. And you move boxes around as you need to to get to the part of the floor that you need to replace. This is why there was no sniper's nest, okay? They had to move these boxes around to the edges of the building, close to the windows, so that the middle of the floor would be open so that they could start to replace the floor, okay? So was the assassin sitting behind and shielded from Bonnie Ray Williams as he sat up there on a couple boxes on a, on a handcart and ate his chicken sandwich and drank his Dr. Pepper and left his trash on the floor. So was the real assassin sitting back there the whole time just waiting, 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 waiting? Or was there anybody back there at all? You know, we'll never know. We'll never know the truth. It's become so, so convoluted over the years.
you know, it's just unbelievably how con- unbelievable how convoluted this whole thing has become throughout the years. It's no wonder, you know, that people like the OIC and Ralph and Richard and all these other people have these crazy ass theories. When you know what, I can look at the official documents. And I can exonerate Oswald that way. You know, I don't have to have a picture of maybe it's him in front in the doorway when nobody else puts him out there. Okay, we can do it just by piecing together what other people say. Other people that work with him, other people that knew him uh, and knew that he was not out front. Okay, that's why I'm guessing this guy was loving life. He had the dominant room to himself. Okay, and maybe. He helped the uh, assassin escape. Maybe the guy started to come down. Whoever was on the sixth floor, okay, maybe that guy started to come down, heard Otis Williams coming up, and ducked into the fifth floor where Jarman and Norman and Williams were, okay, snuck in, hopped on the elevator, went down to the first floor, and out the back door and out the building. Helped by Lee Oswald. Or helped by no one at all. We don't know. But that would have been the only way that they could have come down. Because Otis Williams was coming up. Up to the fourth floor. Okay. Then you had Vicki Adams going down from the fourth floor. Okay. Then you had Otis Williams going back down to the second floor. And then you had Truly and Baker coming up. So, like Otis Williams posited that he posited Oswald had to come down on the elevator. And if it wasn't Oswald, it was the assassin. So, this changes everything. You know? And it doesn't mean there wasn't a shooter somewhere else. I'm just talking about what the hell was going on inside the school book depository. Because it's a mess. You know, it is a total mess. You know, you'd think these guys would know what floor they're on when they're eating lunch. And you'd think they'd be truthful when it comes to testifying to a presidential commission, you know, but, or, or giving a statement to the police, you know, maybe these guys were paranoid, you know, you know how it was back then, you know, black people weren't, didn't really have their civil rights yet. They were still looked down upon in society and, uh, you know, probably figured that they might, it might could be getting blamed for this, uh, Somehow, some way, they could get roped into it, so they wanted to distance themselves from it. That's a very plausible scenario, and I, I can't say is that I blame them. But uh, it it obfuscates the truth, which is ultimately what we're trying to get at here. Whew. All right, people, I've had enough of this for about one day. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening head over to tlgpodcast.com for all your relevant links to the show. Everything talked about today will be there. All the links where you can help out the show, help support the show are there. All of my past shows are there. All you gotta do is head over to tlgpodcast.com and click play and it'll play right there on the page. It couldn't be easier for you to listen. Um, And thank you everybody that have been checking me out. I'm now over 410 followers strong on Spreaker and 17,000 listens in a year. That's awesome. You know, I appreciate the support. Keep listening, sharing links. I couldn't do it without you. 
Um, I do it for you. So please help a brother out if you enjoy the show. Share some links for me. Um, like I said, if you can help me out and shop through some of the links on, on the website, it would help me a lot. I got some big bills coming up here real soon. Make sure you're checking out Neopolis Media Group and Carmine Savastano over at tpaak.com. That's tpac.com. Um, check what he, out what he's doing. Check out Chuck O'Celli's show, The O'Celli Effect. Uh, right now, it's over on ucy.tv. He's going to be moving over to American Freedom Radio here real soon, but he's still there at ucy.tv backslash toe. He's doing good stuff. Check him out. I was just on his show. Uh, busting some official myths of the Warren Commission. And my buddy Doug Camel still slinging stuff over on the Dallas Action. He just dropped another one, and I think he's going to have Garland Brown on next week. Make sure to check it out. Show him some love. This is your boy, Rob Clark. Beaming this son of a bitch up to the satellite, down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy, Rob Clark, on the Lungoman Podcast. Thanking you for listening to episode number 65. Peace. Andrew's Colnick needs to get laid. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Restrictions may apply. Plans and costs for coverage may vary. Call Protect My Car for details. In these hard economic times, you've got to do whatever you can to save money. One of our biggest expenses can be our cars, especially when unexpected repair bills hit. Not anymore. If you do own a car, truck, or SUV made from $19.99 or higher, you could stop paying for car repairs. That's right. You might not have to pay a penny to have it repaired. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if you qualify. You must have an automobile made from $19.99 or higher. And all repairs. Repairs for your engine, transmission, and much more can become a thing of the past. Dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone today and get your car protected before your next repair bill hits. That's right. Total protection for your car and no more repair bills. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if your car qualifies. That's star star 1149. Never pay for car repairs again. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now. Dial star star 1149.